Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again as we worship our great God and King. And what a wonderful reminder as we've just sung that He is such a faithful God whose mercies are new every morning. We're going to be reminded of that as we open God's Word together again this morning. But as we prepare to do that, you know, um, I know that it hasn't escaped your attention that uh, life has been complicated over this uh, past year and a half. And uh, one, of the, one of the complications that some of us have experienced is the fact that increasingly we are having to get tests for different activities. Now, I travel quite extensively, and so I have to go and get a test so that I can then show the results of a test in order to move from place to place and country to country. And the problem is that most of us don't like tests of any sort. Any sort of test, we immediately, in our mind, we go back to fifth grade. And that, 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 that fear of how this, this pop quiz is going to end up. But you know what? Tests are a part of life. There are tests that we go through to get certified for a certain career path. There are tests certainly that we have to do in school. There are seasons in our life where unfortunately we have to undergo medical tests. As we're studying together this fall through this book of First John in the series that we're calling From the Beginning, we are finding the Apostle John, as he writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, setting forth a series of tests. But the purpose for those tests that he sets forth, and we saw uh, one of those last week, we might call it the test of obedience. Uh, The purpose for those tests is not so that we would find ourselves standing in dread of, oh no, I've got to take a test. But rather, he sets them forth for his readers 2,000 years ago and for believers all throughout the history of the church so that we might have great joy and great confidence in the knowledge of the genuineness of our salvation. And so this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time as we jump back into God's Word, and uh, I want to invite you to join me there in 1 John and chapter 2. We're picking up from where we left off last week, which means we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. As we turn there together this morning, there's a sense in which uh, the test that he is laying out for us in this passage is what we might refer to as the test of love, the test of love. And and as we travel through this passage this morning, it's quite a lengthy passage, and I I have been uh, wrestling with Pastor Matt this week over the fact that he gave me such a long passage and not enough time to deal with it, but we're going to, in a sense, come up with a couple of questions that John wants us to consider and test and answer, Uh, the first of which is, are we lovers of self? more than lovers of others? Are we lovers of self rather uh, more than lovers of others? And, and the second that we're going to see uh, and examine together is are we lovers of things 
more than lovers of God. Are we lovers of things more than lovers of God? And so with those questions, with this idea of this test of love in mind, let's look together, beginning in verse 7, 1 John chapter 2. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What we see explained for us here is that genuine faith results in active love, but that selfishness leaves us lost. Genuine faith results in active love, but but selfishness leaves us lost. Now, it's a little confusing at first as he addresses them in this affectionate way. He he refers to them and to us as beloved, but then he says that he is writing this, this to them, something which is not a new command, and then he goes on to say, well, kind of, it, it sort of is a new command. The command that he's giving here is not adding something to true faith. He's speaking of something that has always been a part of it. And so the command that he is referring to here is really the command of love. In the Old Testament, we see the instruction that you are to uh, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and and to love your neighbor as yourself. When the the scholar, when the scribe came to Jesus and said, hey, which which is the greatest of the commandments? Uh, that's how Jesus answered. You're to love the Lord your God and, and love your neighbor as yourself. But more than that, we find Jesus speaking to his disciples back in John's gospel in chapter 13, verse 34. And there he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. And it appears that it is this reference from John 13, 34 that John here has in mind as he's writing this. He says, well, so, so I'm not giving you a new commandment because we've known from the beginning that we are to love. But there's a sense in which this is a new commandment because this, this, this new commandment that we have from Christ, it, the love part is not new. But the as I have loved you part is. And he goes on to explain to them here, the fact that this is a new commandment is because apart from Christ, before you and I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, before the Holy Spirit took up residence within us, we could not love others in the way that Christ loves us. It is only in the power and enablement of the Holy Spirit that we are able to love others as Christ loves. And then he goes into this next 
part where we see, in a sense, that the test of genuine faith is active love. Look with me at verse 9 and following. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Well, last week we spent a little bit of time uh, in chapter 1 talking about this idea of light and darkness. We saw that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And, and then we learn that if we profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, but our lives do not reflect the character of God, do not reflect the light, the righteousness, the purity, the holiness of God, then we are deceiving ourselves. Because the Christian life is about the Spirit of God conforming us in increasing measure to the likeness of our Savior Jesus. So if our lives bear no resemblance whatsoever to the things of God, then we ought to be concerned over the genuineness of our walk with Him. And again, John's returning to that same idea as he shows us that the test of genuine faith is active love. Now, notice he says, whoever says... He is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And that sounds pretty, pretty harsh. First thing I want you to realize is when he refers here to his brother, uh, this is a, a term that points us to the fact that he is speaking about a, a, a relationship that exists within the believing community. Whenever we find in the New Testament this idea of your brother, that's talking about other believers. We could say brothers and sisters, those who are a part of the fellowship of faith. He says, you know, it's one thing to say that you're in the light. It's one thing to say that you're a follower of Jesus. It's one thing to say that you're living to honor God. But if you hate your brother, you're deceiving yourself. You know, one of the things that John was facing in his day, and we still wrestle with today, is that there were some who had this idea that honoring God is all about what you know. It's about, it's about discovering the, the deep spiritual secrets. There are others still today, as there were in John's day, who said, well, yeah, but it's all about me, and it's all about me and God. It's about me and Jesus. It's about my spiritual journey. It's about me growing in him. It's about my personal relationship with Jesus. And and, and that's kind of common language. We hear that a lot today. But did you know that the New Testament has no space whatsoever for your personal relationship with Jesus? Yes, every individual person must respond to the gospel call and be saved. But what we find all through the New Testament is that it is a corporate faith. It is a relational faith. And what John is making the point here of, it's not first and foremost about how much you know about all the complicated stuff of theology. And, and it's not so much about, oh, yeah, well, it's me and Jesus, he's my buddy, but I don't really have time for... No, it's like our genuine faith is exhibited in our relationship with one another. We touched on this briefly last week, but he is now getting even more explicit over this. 
Now, we read this, and most of us would say, well, I hate you. I, I don't hate anybody. I mean, there's some people I can't stand. There's some people who, when I see they're coming, I'm like, oh, let me find a different direction to go. But I don't hate my brother. But we have to understand that there is no such thing as neutral gear when it comes to love. There's no such thing as neutral gear. Imagine for me, with me for a moment that you are out for a walk in a beautiful but deserted place. Uh, maybe you're up on, on, on a cliff and you're walking along this and you're surrounded by trees here and then there's a cliff edge and there's this beautiful vista in front of you and you're just enjoying it. As you're walking along, you're, you're listening to the birds singing, you're admiring the view, you're breathing in that fresh, clean air, and as you're walking along, all of a sudden, you notice someone has fallen over the edge, and they are clinging on to an outcrop for dear life. And as you look, maybe you are kind of irritated because they are interrupting your nice, serene, and pleasant walk. And, and, and maybe you decide, well, that's an interruption, so I'm just going to keep on going. We would recognize that that is wrong, that we need to do whatever we can to help that person. But you see, sometimes we have this false idea that, that when we leave something undone, when we leave a need unmet, that we're just leaving it unmet. That it's just kind of neutral. It's like, well, I could actively intervene there, and that would be the loving thing to do. Or I could just keep on going, and, and I'm not doing anything wrong because I'm just, I'm just not acting. But when we look at what John is saying here, what we see is that to fail to actively love is to hate, is to despise. In fact, I find this very helpful that uh, a Glenn Barker writes these words. He says, hate is the absence of deeds of love. Hate is the failure to deny oneself, the unwillingness to lay down one's own life for a brother. It considers its own plight first. It disregards the robbed and the afflicted. It despises little ones. It withholds the cup of cold water from the thirsty. And it makes no effort to welcome the stranger, to clothe the naked, or to help the sick. Listen to this. When a brother has a need and one does not help him, then one has despised and in fact hated his brother. It is not merely a matter of I can choose to love or I just leave something undone. John is saying, if you see somebody who has a need and you fail to step in and lovingly minister to that person, you have despised them. You have hated them. Now, don't get me wrong. We can't meet every need of every person, but we can do something. And one of the hallmarks of genuine 
faith, one of the tests that we are walking in the light is a loving compassion that reflects the heart of God. Later on in the book, we'll see this in coming weeks, we're going to see that we cannot say that we love God if we hate our brother. We cannot say that we love the God that we have not seen if we hate the brother that we do see. And so he says here, then in verse 10, the positive side of this, but whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. There is no tripping up. There is no, nothing that he has to fear. There is no going astray. And then verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in darkness, and he walks in darkness, and he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, there's this picture here of it kind of is groping around. He is not living in the light of God's character. Therefore, he is simply doing his own thing. And he is going from place to place, groping around as if in darkness, just doing whatever he thinks will be most satisfying to himself. And so the issue here is one of selfishness or of sacrificial love. And those who walk in the light seek to sacrificially love those that God has set around them within the community of faith. So we need to ask the Lord Jesus to teach us to love others as he loves, to deny ourselves and consider the needs of others. And sometimes that's just a matter of simply opening our our eyes to those who are around us. I mean, just very practically, let me ask, when was the last time, when was the last time that you actively were engaged in loving a brother or sister in Christ, even here in this church? When was the last time that that you went out of your way to cook a meal for somebody who has a need and take it over to them? When was the last time that you took time out of your, uh, your schedule and your week to stop and to call up somebody in the church just to let them know that you are thinking of them and that you're praying for them and to ask them, hey, how can I pray for you today? When was the last time that you invited somebody for coffee? When was the last time that you looked around here at the church and were like, I don't think I've seen those people here before? Even though it feels a little bit uncomfortable, I'm going to go up and introduce myself to them and make sure that they feel welcomed. Because that's what the people of God do. It's what we do. Problem is, sometimes, sometimes we're quick with excuses. Ah, yeah, but, 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 but I'm so busy. Sometimes we, sometimes we make excuses. Yeah, well, I'm, just, I'm not really good at that kind of thing. Or, oh, it's okay, somebody else will do it. Or, that's why Laura is on staff here at the church. She's really good at it, so I'll leave it to her. You know, when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, I've checked, and there are no loopholes in that. But one of the great difficulties that we face when it comes to loving others is that there is a level of inconvenience to it. So we have to be aware of those excuses that we commonly are prone to make. And we need to say, you know what? I could come up with excuses all day long or I can be obedient in this area. 
But one of the great challenges, and some going to step on some toes here, one of the challenges that we, that we face even as a starting point is, you know what, if you come into the service five minutes after the service has started and you leave out the door 30 seconds before the service ends, you're going to never have an opportunity to connect enough with other people to actively love them. But John's not done. He goes on in the next portion of this passage to show us that genuine faith, evidenced by active love, enables us to live with a a firm assurance of our faith. It enables us to live with with a joyful confidence. This seems at first like a strange set of verses. If you look with me at verse 12 and following, it says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. What we see here is, is this idea is still of, of this presentation of a series of tests, and as I've already indicated, the purpose in writing those is not so much to confirm Uh, um, whether or not somebody is truly a believer or not, although that is a piece of it. It's not to rob them of of, of a sense of joy and instill a sense of fear, but rather it is to give a a confidence. And, And we see that demonstrated here as John addresses these three groups, little children and fathers and young men. Now, some scholars disagree over exactly who he is addressing this to. Some will say that he's specifically referring to literally little children and to fathers and to young men. Others, and this is the view that I take as I've studied it, is he seems to be speaking to people at different levels of spiritual maturity. So we have little children are those who are young in the faith. We have fathers, those who are mature. And so we could equally uh, um, uh, speak of this to, as all believers, as those who are spiritually mature, who have, who, who have perhaps for a generation been walking with the Lord. And then we've got young men. Uh, we've got those who are kind of in between. They're, 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 they're starting to grow. They, they have a vibrancy and, a, and, and, and an excitement about their faith, but they, they, they still have that level of immaturity that they struggle along the way. And it's interesting the way that he breaks this down, as I think that he's giving to each of them an assurance. And even amidst these tests, there is a sense in which John is saying, hey, listen, I'm putting these tests out. We talked last week about the test of obedience. We're talking here about the test of love. He's like, my dearly beloved, I I want you to know I have every confidence that you will pass these tests. And I want to remind you of the reason that you can have confidence in the genuineness of your salvation, and it is because we have a faithful God. And so you'll see here that we've got these different groups, and just very quickly, first of all, the little children. He says a couple of things to them. He he first says to them, your sins are forgiven. And then in the second part of the the verse there, he, he says, and you know the Father. Your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. It seems to be a reminder and an assurance for all of them, even for those who are newest in Christ, that you are forgiven. 
and that you have come into a relationship with the God of the universe, and and that because your sins are forgiven, because you have come to know the Father, you can have great confidence. So stand firm and keep walking in the light. To the fathers, to those who are, the, if you like, the spiritually mature, those who have been walking with Christ for a long time, even those who have been walking with Christ can sometimes face things in our life, and we, uh, we, we, we fear, and we're like, is this, is this genuine? Uh, am, I, am I really a, a, a believer? And so he goes on to the fathers on the next slide, and he says, you know him who is from the beginning. Now, it's interesting. To this group, he actually speaks uh, the same word twice. Uh, he, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. And uh, it seems to be that he is saying to those who are mature uh, that they are mature in their knowledge of who God is, that they have tested over the long haul the fact that God is unchanging in his faithfulness. You have tested and you have proved God and you have found him utterly faithful because you walked with him for many years and he has never once, never once let you down. And so we have this idea here of knowing that he was and he is and always will be, that he is unchanging. We understand the greatness and the faithfulness of God. We have put, learned to put our full weight on him. And then the third group, the young men, He says to them, first of all, you have overcome the evil one. And then he says, you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And then again, he repeats this, and you have overcome the evil one. And so we could say that the the children, those who are young in the faith, are those who have a simple faith, yet they can still have great assurance because their faith is based not on their own merit, but on the one who has forgiven their sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. The fathers are those whose faith has become robust and is proven and tested with time. And the young men here are those who are strong and vigorous, but they're still growing. They're they're waging battle against sin, yet they are able to experience victory in Christ over the enemy as they continue to allow the word of God to take root in their life. And John is saying, I'm writing these things to you to encourage you. I'm writing to to reassure you. I'm writing to remind you, stand firm. Don't give up. I have every confidence that as you seek to walk in the light, you will be found to pass the test. Then we move From this, where we see that we are to live in such a way as to reflect the truth of who we are in Christ and actively remind ourselves of what He has done. To this last section, just a couple of verses here, where we address that second question that I asked at the beginning Are we lovers of things more than lovers of God? We've already talked about are we lovers of self more than lovers of other, but others, but are we lovers of things more than we are lovers of God? You know, probably one of my favorite books of all time is The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. If you have never read that book, I cannot recommend it enough to you. If it's been some time since you've read it, go out, pick it up, and read it again. In this classic book, it's actually the second most published book in in history. 
after the Bible. And it is an allegory. It is a story of a man by the name of Christian and his journey in coming to faith and then through the trials, the difficulties, the joys, and the victories he faces on his path to the celestial city. One of the places that, uh, that, that Christian passes through on the way, along with his friend Faithful, is a place that is called Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair is a place where anything can be bought and sold. It is a place of infinite pleasure. And in fact, as the story unfolds, we learn that Vanity Fair has a dark history because it was founded by Beelzebub, the devil devil himself. And it was set there strategically in order to entice and to distract and to waylay travelers and to keep them distracted from pursuing the things of God. We don't use the word vanity very much anymore, but it simply means that which appears to be enticing and attractive and satisfying, but is ultimately empty and worthless and vain. And there they find in Vanity Fair that there are so many things in the marketplace for sale, and yet they must stay on the path. And that's is a beautiful picture of what John is talking about in these last couple of verses we're looking at this morning. Verse 15 through 17, where we read, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And what we see here is that love for the world is out of keeping with love for God. So we must be careful that it doesn't distract us. In a sense, he's saying it's just like Vanity Fair. There are so many things that are vying for our attention and for affection, and it looks so attractive, but be careful. Be careful that you don't love things more than you love the Father. What do we do with this? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that in this passage, when John refers to the world, he is not talking here about people. It is not the same thing as we think about in John 3.16 when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. No, here the world is speaking about kind of the world system, the the things that the world uh, presents as being satisfying and pleasurable, the values and the priorities and the attractions that this world that is living in disobedience to God sets before us to try to entice us with. And so he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So this is not saying, some people have falsely looked at this and it's like, oh, we should have nothing to do with the world around us. Well, that's simply not possible. Uh, But what we need to do is we need to be on guard that we do not allow the things that the world promotes to be the things that our heart craves for. Because as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, 
No one can serve two masters. Either he will love one and hate the other, or he'll be devoted to one or despise the other. He can't serve two masters. And therefore, there is a, there is a sense in which a consumption with the things, the values, the priorities, the philosophies, the pursuits of this world is out of keeping, is entirely contradictory to the things of God. Now, when he says this, he goes on to explain this in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, that is, uh, those those. Uh, lusts, those desires to satisfy our, our kind of our physical cravings, the desires of the eyes. Uh, that's the things that we look at and we covet. Uh, we see this everywhere. We see what our neighbor has and, and we want that. The things that we're constantly pursuing, the things that we're allowing in. And then he talks about pride in possession. Some of us maybe memorize this verse from the old King James, and it is rendered beautifully there. It talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and, and the pride of life. And that pride of life, or as it says here, the desires of possessions, is speaking about kind of the whole, the whole course of our life, the whole makeup of our life. And whereas the first two, the, the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, are about those cravings that we have, those thirsts that we have. I want that. I want that. So the pride of life, the pride of in possessions here, that's all about, ha look at the stuff I've got. And how great am I for getting it? And how wonderful am I that I did it on my own? Did you know that here in the United States, the number one most popular song to have played at a funeral is I Did It My Way? What a terrible testimony to the pride of life. That is utterly antithetical, utterly opposite to the love of the Father. We cannot so consume ourselves and distract ourselves with the things of this world because to do so is to set ourselves against the love of the Father. And so we see a couple of things here as he breaks this down for us. The first is, don't misunderstand this. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. He gives us all things for our enjoyment. There is nothing wrong with possessions. There is nothing wrong with enjoying the things that we have in life. They are from the hand of a merciful God. But when we crave always more, We start really in our hearts to accuse God of being cruel and of being bad and of withholding stuff from us. No. That which we have, we have because of his wisdom, his mercy, and his grace. And that which we do not have, he has withheld from us because of his goodness and his mercy and his wisdom and his grace. Thanks be to God. When we so are infatuated with the things around us, We accuse God of being wrong. And we start to treat him as that master who is to be despised. So we have to be on guard. And we have to see, as John explains here, that it is foolish to love the world because the world and all of its desires is passing away. 
Notice that in verse 17, is passing away. Up on the next slide here, a couple of images which are going to be kind of depressing for some of us. That new car that you just got to have, that, that one that you love, the, the new car smell. You know, that one that is going to be so exciting, so, uh, you know, that, that, that's just going to make you feel good. You know, if you can just have that new car, then, then, then you're going to feel like you've arrived. Here's where it's going. This is where it's going. That house, that house, you know, if I can just move into a bigger house. We've got some furniture that's falling apart. We ordered some new furniture like nine months ago now, and because of everything, it's still not arrived. So finally, we go and say, just give us anything that you have in stock because we can't wait anymore. Our children and our dogs have destroyed everything we have. And so I was at the furniture store, and I said, yeah, we don't have that big a space, and so we don't want this you know, huge complex of couches. And, and, and the first thing that the woman said to me, the sales lady there, um, is, is like, oh, it's all right, maybe when you get a bigger place. It's like, we don't need a bigger place. Why do you assume that we just want to get a bigger place? And yet the world tells us you have to get a bigger place. HGTV tells you that you're, you've got to take down that wall. You have to have an island. If you don't have an island, your life is not complete. But you know what? We buy into the stuff. We buy into the stuff, and ultimately, here it is. Here's your house. Here's your dream home. It's passing away. John's saying, don't get so wrapped up in the things that Vanity Fair is trying to sell you because ultimately it will come to nothing. Do you love stuff more than you love the Father? No. We need to ask the question, what about us? What about our hearts? Which stalls have we been hanging out in at Vanity Fair? Do you find yourself so distracted, so entangled, so seduced by things in this world around you that you spend all of your time pouring your life into that. And all of your neighbors think that you're just like them because you're pursuing precisely the same thing that they are even though they don't yet know Christ. How do we live free from the love of the world? How do we make sure that we are aligning our hearts' affections? We've talked briefly about this idea of how do we love one another as we're called to do and turn from selfishness. Well, how do we live free from this kind of love of the world? The first thing that we need to do is we need to examine our speech. That may seem like a strange thing, but here's Jesus said something incredible to his disciples. Actually, everything he said was incredible, but, but this particular thing is relevant to what we're talking about here. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know what somebody loves, listen to what they're always talking about. Our speech betrays our priority, our value, and our love. How do we free ourselves from the love of the world? First of all, examine your speech. Are there some things that you seem to always be talking about? If it's always about that promotion, if it's always about that new car, if it's always about the latest phone, if it's... Then maybe 
maybe the claws of Vanity Fair are clutching onto you very tightly. Examine your speech, because as we examine our speech, we begin to see these things, and we get to come before the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, I have loved other stuff more than I have loved you. Would you forgive me, and would you teach me how to untangle my heart from those things that I might pursue you with everything that I am and everything that I have. And Lord, teach me to be content with the good things that you have given me. We also, secondly, need to examine our calendar. I've talked about this at different times, but the reality is that we give time to that which is of greatest value and priority to us. If we don't have time to actively engage in acts of love toward one another, or, or, or if we are constantly saying, well, you know, I would read, the, I, I would get into the Bible study here at the church, but, but, but I just don't have the time. Or I, I, would, I would set aside some time for prayer, but, but, but I never seem to have the time. We have to examine and take a look at our calendar and say, okay, what are some of the things that are there? that are keeping me from doing that which is honoring to Christ and, and, and of, of good to my soul. God will never give you so much to do that you don't have time to be obedient to Him. We also need to examine not only our speech, not only our calendar, but folks, we need to examine our, ba- our bank statement. Perhaps you've heard me say this before, but our bank statement is not just about numbers in and numbers out. It's actually a theological statement. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That which we love is shown by that where we put our resources, our time, our talent, our treasures. Are you investing in things of eternal significance? Or is it all about the pleasures that are fleeting? Is it all about getting the next upgrade? We don't have to look too far to remember the fact that things are fleeting. Because I travel, I need to have a good phone. And, 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 and so uh, last year I upgraded and I got the new iPhone 12. And this week I've been getting emails constantly saying, it's time to upgrade the new iPhone 13. Your one is useless now. I said, well, well, well. what are we investing in? Where are we setting that which God has entrusted to us? And then finally... Examine not only your speech, not only your calendar, not only your bank statement, but friends, examine your thirst. Examine your thirst. That may seem, seem like something strange to say, but what do you desire? What are you thirsting? What are you constantly craving for more of? We all have thirsts and desires of the heart, and you know what? God has set a thirst in our hearts. But it is placed there that we might desire Him. The Bible teaches us that our thirst 
ought to be for God. To know him better, to thirst after him, and to allow him and him alone to satisfy the deep desires and cravings of our heart. But the problem is that all of the other stuff that we chase after gets in the way of that. It seems to quench our thirst so that we no longer thirst for God. The problem is that when we try to quench our God-given thirst for Him with other things, it is ultimately like drinking poison to the soul. It may keep us from feeling thirsty, but it's slowly killing us. In Psalm 73, a man by the name of Asaph, who was the worship leader for the whole of Israel under King David and King Solomon, he's facing a struggle. And his struggle is that as he looks at the world around him, as he looks at the people in his community, he says, the rich are the ones who always seem to prosper. The wicked are those who always seem to get ahead. And it feels like everything I do into service to God is not even worth it. And as he wrestles with this, and he wonders, why am I pursuing the things of God when everybody else seems to get ahead? He comes to this place where he again comes before God, and when he comes before God, he gains the right perspective once again. And finally, as the psalm closes in Psalm 73, 25, he says, Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing that I desire on earth beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He recognizes that the only one who can satisfy the true thirst of his heart, the only one who is deserving of the full weight of, of his love is the Lord God. What do you thirst for? What do you love? What do you delight in? I wish that I could tell you that I am able to say there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. I want that to be true, but I want to confess to you, I don't know that I'm there yet. But I want to be. How about you? Are we lovers of self more than lovers of others? Are we lovers of things more than lovers of God? My prayer for us is that we would set aside the things of this world and our hearts, thirst, desire, joy, and pleasure would be found to be satisfied in Him. Who knows how to give good gifts to meet our every need and to bring us a joy that this world can never offer. So would you pray with me? Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, would you forgive us for our love for the things of this world and for our tendency to be distracted and seduced and to pour ourselves out in love and pursuit of those things instead of your things. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness that is available in Christ. Teach us to walk in your ways. Teach us to love one another. And teach us to desire you above all things and to spend ourselves on that which will last for all eternity. 
And Lord, in the words of A.W. Tozer, we pray, Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness. And it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. Yet I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. And I thirst to be made thirsty still. Lord, we lay our lives before you. May we love as you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.